At the beginning of the story, the people gather as one person in the square and they ask Ezra to bring out the book of the law. When Ezra brings out the book of the law, the people immediately stand up. It has not been read yet. They lift their hands in the air. They shout, Amin, Amin, which is, let it be true. This is the truth. And then they fall down on their faces to the ground and worship Yahweh. Now, law still has not been read yet, but they are clearly in a place where they can hear it. That's posturing. Once the people are in that situation, that position, the book of the law is then read. Verses two and three say it is read from early morning until noon, six hours of reading scripture. How would you like that? If I said the text this morning is Psalm 119, every word, all 176 verses, there would be a collective sigh over the congregation, maybe. Six hours of reading the word. That's scripturing. But while they were reading it, the Levites or the priests were running around meeting with little groups of people saying, can you understand, did you understand what you just heard? And we don't know what, part of it is that they were translating it from the Hebrew into Aramaic so they could understand it. But the other part of it is they were making the meaning of those verses plain to the people so that while it was being read, people could interpret what they were supposed to do. And they got part, that's discerning. And then they got part way through that and they realized that there's this place in the Old Testament where we're supposed to be worshiping in booths. We're not living in booths. We're living in nice homes. So it's, they virtually shut the service down, just stopped everything and ran out and started collecting branches. Uh, <laughs> And they started building these booths and they set them on the roofs of their houses. They put them in their courtyards. They even put them in the temple square. They put them in the center of the city. These little booths, lean-tos all over the city. And then people crawled in them and they lived there for a week. Can you imagine what would happen if partway through a worship service, all of a sudden somebody would just stand up and say, wait a minute. Don't go any further. We're not doing that. We got to go do that. And we stop the service. That would be amazing. You always hear people say, oh, the spirit moved. There was no preaching. <laughs> there was only music. What if they said, oh, the spirit moved. There was no preaching. There was reading and then there was obedience. It's not just that our hearts were moved. We were. We moved the furniture in our lives. We did hard things because we heard the word read. 
would that not be a different congregation? In 2001, Elizabeth uh, had what many would call the perfect life. She was all only 32 years old and um, had already written three books, had already received the National Book Award, had a six-figure salary as a travel writer. She had a, an apartment in Manhattan, a brand new big house in Hudson Valley, and was married to her devoted husband, and they were intending to start a family together. In her words, all of that changed the night Elizabeth heard from God. It was three o'clock in the morning. She had locked herself inside of the bathroom, and she was, in her words, sobbing uncontrollably over the life she thought she wanted, but she didn't want anymore. She said it was on that night that she heard God's voice. She said it was not an Old Testament Charlton Heston voice, nor was it a voice telling me to build a baseball field in my backyard. It was merely my own voice speaking from within my own self. And yet this was my voice as I had never heard it before. This was my voice, but it was perfectly wise, calm, and compassionate. This was what my voice would sound like if I'd only ever experienced love and certainty in my life. She grew up a Protestant of the white Anglo-Saxon persuasion. Those are her words. But she was unable to swallow that one fixed rule of Christianity, she says, insisting that Christ is the only path to God. So when she prayed that night in the bathroom, she prayed in her words to the universe, the great void, the force, the supreme self, the whole, the creator, the light, the higher power, you know, and she sobbed, I don't want to be married anymore. God, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to live in this big house, and I don't want to have this baby. Then she heard the voice. It said, go back to bed, Liz. So she went back to bed, and in the morning, she started her new life. She promptly left her husband, left the big house and the plans for the family, and filed for divorce. And in her words, she moved right in with her boyfriend. And when she did, she found out he was more emotionally withdrawn and then more sexually withdrawn than she had hoped. And in her words, I went into a tailspin of loneliness, alienation, and meticulously detailed suicidal thoughts. Before she left that boyfriend, he introduced her to an ashram from India who introduced her to a ninth-generation Balinese medicine man who prophesied that she would one day be rich, then come back and teach him English. After the divorce was final, Elizabeth went into a four-month Roman holiday, exploring what she called the three eyes, Italy, India, and Indonesia. 
And it was in that sojourn, she said, she learned to love herself again. She learned to commune with God and she learned to balance her worldliness and her religion. She chronicled this period of her life in a book called uh, Eat, Love, and Pray, and it went for 187 weeks on the New York Times bestseller. One of the reviewers who read that divulged her own spiritual journey. She said, I was a single mother. I was so desperately sad and lonely that I'd go to the bookstore every Friday night and I would walk around looking for any sign, the next sign that was right for me. I prayed and I prayed constantly, not knowing what or where I needed to be with my physical life, with my spiritual life, with my love life, with my motherhood. And then I looked up and on the top shelf of the bestseller list was the book, Eat, Love, and Pray. And I instantly felt in that direction. She has since read the book seven times, bought 13 copies, given all away, and reports that every time she reads it, I learn something about the world, about God, about others, and about myself. Now, the reason I start with that story is because I think it illustrates two important things. Both lie at the base of this message. One is it illustrates what is happening to religion in America. We are not probably more secular than we used to be. We're probably as religious as we ever were. We suffer not from unbelief. We suffer from bad belief. We are not uh, atheists. We're heretics. We have invented religion on the basis of our, largely of our preferences. And then God is brought in later to cater to those things. The second thing that it illustrates is um, why scripturing is so important in the listening process. Because apart from the scripture, we have no external voice that regulates all of these things we're gonna hear when we get in a posture to listen. The moment we shut down to listen, the mind goes into overdrive and we invent prophecies. Some of those may be accurate, others may not. We don't know which is which until we subject them to a force or a source outside of ourselves that has the power to inform us, correct us, confront us, move us, call us into things we otherwise would not do. From the best 
I can tell the religion in America has a few qualities if you put them all into a room. One is that your feelings and emotions are the most important part about you. That's how you know when God is speaking. Right now, if you fill a room like this one with evangelicals, only one out of six tell us that they ever hear from God in the course of a year. One out of six. Five of six hear nothing in the time of a year. If you move the one out of six people into another room and ask them, how do you hear from God? The overwhelming response is through my feelings and my emotions. And so we are being taught by this culture today to express desires boldly without ever questioning the origin of them. Second, most of these voices tell us that structured, organized religion is too small for us. It's too narrow. We need to collect from all of them. They're all serving a larger purpose, which is mostly happiness more than it is holiness. Third, these voices teach us to lead more than they teach us how to follow. They give us self-confidence. They do not give us humility. They tell us to believe in ourselves, almost never to doubt ourselves. This is the culture in which we serve, live. I was uh, reading in Nehemiah 8, and with this in the back of my mind, it became very clear uh, to, to, to me what was happening on, on this day. I had just come out of my time in devotions with um, the kings, uh, and then I went from the kings into the prophets. And the prophets got so negative uh, that I had to stop, literally. I got halfway through Jeremiah, and I was like, holy cow, man, dude, this is overload. So I went from Jeremiah to Ezekiel, and he doubled down. Uh, and that is where I am today. And what I learned about that period in history is that in eras when God is speaking, there is not greater clarity. I was sure if God was active speaking, he would bring clarity to the situation. In fact, the opposite is true. It is because when God is speaking and active, the culture is ready for a word. And other voices rush in to fill that void by speaking with their own authority. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah are full of these kind of litanies against people that speak in God's name, but God himself has not spoken. 
They are greedy for gain. They minimize the problem. Jeremiah says, they treat my people's wound as if it wasn't serious. They cannot stand silence. They will not submit to authority structures. They invent words and then quote God as the one who said them, like the trump card. A horrible and shocking thing has occurred, said Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. Wait for it. And my people love it that way. Have you had enough? So it's appropriate on this day when the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt, the exile is almost over, the people have gathered together to uh, build the temple, they've started to build the temple, they all meet in the city square and they bring out the book. A few things strike me about this scene. And all of these things need to happen, church, in our day if we are going to hear God's voice. One is that the book is introduced not by the clergy, but by the laity. Thank God. Ezra does not walk from the side with a book in his hand. Ezra comes into the square and the people have already gathered as one. And it's the laity who say, where's the book? Go get the book. The clergy are not having to talk laity into reading the book. They want to read it themselves. They're self-feeders. This needs to happen in our day. When we gather, as we're gathered right now, I should not be introducing the text to anyone. We should already be familiar with it, conversant in it, fluent in it. When stories or passages or proverbs are dropped, they should resonate with us. Not long ago, I received an email that said, how come you don't ever preach from the Bible? Normally, I'm nicer in my response. Really, I've worked on that. Not well, but I've worked on it. I said, one would have to know the Bible 
to know whether I preach from the Bible. There are, in fact, on any given Sunday between 30 and 35 references or metaphors that are dropped, one right after the other. You'd have to catch that. Second, when they bring the book out, they read it in the company of all the people. The New International Version says there were male and female. Everyone who could understand was in the hearing of the book. The book was not read in private in devotions. It was read in public in front of a diverse audience. And so when it was read, oh, we got the richness and the depth of multiple perspectives and experiences and disciplines. It was not read by middle-class white male, educated, happily married Republicans. <laughs> Fox News watchers. You... They were there, but they were not the whole audience. We need to read the Bible more like this, do we not? We need to read the scripture in the presence of people who don't agree with us about the scripture. Because it reminds us that the scripture is above us. It's not something that we can put under a microscope and study it as though we were an expert. While we are studying the scripture, it is studying us and it is forming conclusions about us and how God treats us will be the result of the conclusions that are made while we are reading and studying the scripture. How we handle the scripture is a direct reflection of the kind of God we believe exists. And so if we believe he is truly present and in the room, then we read it as a speaking voice, not as a document to be analyzed and dissected and critiqued. I did that for a while and it nearly ruined me. I loved the arguments about which passages were inspired and what documents are legitimate and what was the evolution of the Bible. Oh, I studied it, but you guys, I got to the point where I realized that all that knowledge did was take away. It never gave me anything else to believe in its place. And I found myself looking at a bookshelf full of scholars and saying, so I can no longer believe this. Who do I believe now? 
You? <laughs> Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are you? No, the right context is to be in the company of brothers and sisters from diverse experiences who speak into our reading of the scripture. And now, out of the other side of my mouth, the third thing that I noticed is that while they were reading it, there were informed and intelligent people in the company who were running around explaining, did you hear what you read? Do you know what that means? Did, did you hear that right? That there were educated voices. This was not a first century American Bible study where the text is read and then the next question is, what does that mean to you? <laughs> well, that's the second question. The first question is, what's it mean, period? How do you feel about that? Well, that's, for the moment, kind of irrelevant till we know what exactly God has said. Then I will tell you how I feel about that. There were intelligent people there, and finally, this is my last one. There was a bias toward action. The people called for the book, not the clergy. And when they brought it out, it was read in the company of a diverse congregation. And as it was read, intelligent, informed voices went from person to person and said, is that clear? And the moment it was clear, the people said, we got to do this. Obedience, obedience is the best interpreter. It sheds wonderful light on all of those commentaries. So the teachers of the law came to Jesus one day and they said, you prove you are who you say you are and we'll obey you. Jesus said, you have that exactly backwards. You obey me and you will know that I am who I said I am. Truth is a place, son. You have to be in it before you can see it. It's not some proposition put out in front of you to be nodded at. It's a place to enter and to be lived. We must, as a congregation, become more familiar with the book. People, there's dozens of ways for you to do this. There's study Bibles, there's online apps. There, get one. There's one in your pews right now. If you don't have one, take it. It's not stealing. I told you to take it. 
open it and read it. You say, well, I, I, I won't understand it. You'll understand some of it. And that's the part that will give you trouble. It ain't the part you don't understand. Just read it. And when you read it, remember there is a living person on the other side of those words. And the only reason he's using those words is because there aren't other ones. And if you will crawl through the words of scripture and ask yourself, why is he saying this? What does he mean? What is in his heart that makes him say this? Oh, you'll be surprised what you get from the scriptures. Read it. Summarize it. You'll read a chapter and you'll say, I don't, just close it up and say, in one sentence, what did I just read? Maybe you'll find a verse. You'll write it down. This is the recent way. Put the picture up now. This is a wall uh, in my office that, uh, of this that I began doing this very thing in the mornings. Now, you'll read it and you'll summarize it in a post-it note. And then, <laughs> well, you'll be neater about it, more organized. Some of you anal folk. And then sometime in the day, you will use it in a sentence. Sometime in the day, you'll use it in a sentence. It will surprise people. They're like, yeah, I don't know what that has to do with anything. <laughs> and you'll be like, it's okay. I needed to use it in a sentence to remember it. Last week, I was asked to sign a Bible. Put your favorite verse. I didn't put my favorite verse. I put the one I needed to use in a sentence. <laughs> uh, because by using it, I become more familiar with it and I become more conversant in it. And you'd be surprised what sticks when you have to reach for it in your memory to use it in a sentence somewhere in the conversation. Read it in the presence of your children. Get a Bible story book and just open it up. And if you want, have the kids act it out. <laughs> it won't go well. I promise you, all of your firstborns, they'll be attentive, godly, sensitive souls. <laughs> then to make your life interesting, God will give you another one who comes into family devotions like a tornado. And you will look at each other and you will go, we are awful parents. This was supposed to be a time with God. And you'll want to say, straighten up. God is in this room. <laughs> and if you do that, they won't want to serve him because he's scary and mean. It's better just to roll with it. Just say, let's act this out. Or ask them questions. And as they get a little bit older, you'll have to get more inventive. But 
innovate ways to have this book brought in the presence of your kids. Don't let Sunday school, you know, don't, don't let that be the little league coach that teaches them to throw. And You teach them. You read it. And you will gain from it yourself.